1: I'm Linda House, and the president of the Cancer Support Community, and it's my pleasure to be sitting with you today and standing in for your regular host, Kim Tebeldo, who is away. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Today's episode is a part of a series that we've been doing, and hopefully you've had the chance to listen to some of the the programs, but the series is a spotlight on metastatic breast cancer, and what we've tried to really do is to give you a full understanding of what it's like to live with metastatic breast cancer, and as a part of that, today we're going to tackle a subject that can get a little uncomfortable for people, but ever so important, and that is really thinking about planning ahead. Having hard conversations. What paperwork needs to be put in place? What decisions do you need to think about? And you know, never before is has there been a better time to do that than now for all of us. But certainly, if you're faced with a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer or any other kind of cancer, it's important to have these things in order, or to have at least um, been thinking about them. And today we have incredible guests who will be returning to the show, all three of them, and we're so thankful for that. We'll be talking with Lori Bishop, who's the Vice President of Palliative and Advanced Care at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, and my friend and attorney, Paul Pittman, who specializes in estate planning and administration. But first, we're going to spend a few moments with Amy Berman, who is one of my favorite people, and who has been living with metastatic breast cancer for over five years now, and for some reason, Amy, I think that we're, we're coming on uh, on six or maybe even seven um, very soon. Um, but you can you can let us know what that that right number is. Let me tell the folks about you. Um, Amy is a nurse and a nationally recognized expert in the care of the aged. She has been a recipient of numerous honors for her advocacy on behalf of older adults and those facing serious illness. Amy is a senior program officer at the John A. Hartford Foundation, which is devoted to helping to improve the care of older adults. She works to educate people and shift discussions to focus on living well, again, living well, in the face of serious illness and dying with dignity. Amy openly shares her experiences living with stage 4 inflammatory breast cancer, and she is presented to the Institute of Medicine, has authored numerous pieces about her healthcare choices, palliative care, and implications for patients' practice and policy. She's been featured in New York Times, Forbes, and on NPR's Diane Rems Show. Welcome to the show, Amy.
2: Hi, Linda. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
1: Oh, it's such a joy to have you. And you know, Amy, it's it's been a couple of years since we've had you on the show and or since I've had you on the show. Kim I think Kim has. But you know, tell us how are you doing today?
2: Well, it's eight years since I was diagnosed with stage four inflammatory breast cancer and I feel great. I have not been ever hospitalized. I've had no surgeries. I work full time and have a great life, and I just came back from snowmobiling on a glacier in Iceland. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, let's stick with that theme and just
1: tell our listeners what have been some of the experiences that you've had over the years, your travel oh experiences. Oh my gosh.
2: <laughs> Well, I, I always like traveling, so I didn't just start this, you know, when I got a diagnosis of cancer. But it's been a very joyful experience with cancer, and I've gone camelback riding in the Jordanian desert. I've climbed the Great Wall of China. Um, gosh, you know, I've I've gone to all kinds of places and done some things that were, um, you know, physically demanding um, and mm-hmm. tons of fun.
1: That's great. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked about before is your visual, right, the Niagara Falls trajectory. And, you know, I think that's such a really interesting visual um, in the way that you sort of depict how you envision your your cancer and your mortality. And
2: could you just share with our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So at the beginning, when I first got the diagnosis, I felt absolutely fine. So a very surreal experience, but I felt like I was at the top of the falls and I wanted to stay at the top feeling good, good, good. And then at some point, because it's stage four, I expect that I will drop off the cliff. But my goal was to stay good, good, good up at the top of that trajectory really early on. But a lot of people throw a lot of care, you know, a lot of Hail Mary past kinds of care at themselves, and they end up dropping off the cliff. They feel badly because of the treatments that they get. And in the case of stage four cancer, if they're not things that are going to help them, they actually get the complete opposite of what I'm going for. They drop off the cliff and go out to the same end point. So I'm hoping for Niagara Falls.
1: Yeah, And so, you know, so just to sort of underscore that a little bit, the concept is, is that that you may if, if you do more, it doesn't always mean that you're going to feel better. And you right. may feel and better I, by doing less or different. Exactly. And so um, talk to us about how how do you get into that conversation with your family members, with your physicians, how do you sort of introduce that, that concept and really um, become an equal participant in, in your care and decision making?
2: Well, with my family, it was it was pretty easy because in, in my family we had always had these kinds of conversations. I had a grandmother who had Alzheimer's disease and so we had always talked about what we would want. So when I was diagnosed, I told my daughter, and I told my parents and siblings. I explained to them that I was not going to have the um, the breast cancer surgery. I wasn't going to have a mastectomy right up front. That instead, since the cancer had already spread, doing the mastectomy wasn't going to be a helpful thing. Um, and I was going to try to take the least difficult treatments. And my family, you know, they were very supportive. Um, and, and they understood the point. The point is, how do I hold on to a good quality of life for as long as possible?
1: Mm-hmm. And then, what was that conversation like with your healthcare team?
2: Wow, that was a little different. I went to two very different doctors, and the first healthcare team, um, they never asked me what I wanted, and they wanted to. Um, do a mastectomy, radiation, most intense chemotherapy they could do. And they really didn't ask me about the Niagara Falls trajectory. They didn't care. Um, I left that group and I went to a different group of, of clinicians and I explained to them what I'm hoping to do. You know, give me treatment, but try to do the least amount of treatment that holds back the cancer and tries to hold on to my life. And, you know, have have me live a good life, and mm-hmm. they've been completely supportive.
1: Mm-hmm. And what what are what are some of those treatments? Just in broad generalities, what you know, what are some of the treatments that you that you have received or that you um, have chosen not to?
2: So one thing that's really important is that I also have palliative care mixed in with my treatment, and palliative mm-hmm. care is really an extra layer of support. There are professionals that focus on pain and symptom management so that I do stay feeling well. But as far as the actual medications that I take, most people take combination medications um, in the form of um, infusions, IVs. And um, if you have stage 4 cancer, it may not be best to have the combination drugs. Having a single kind of a drug with less side effects Um, may be effective at also holding back the cancer, but not giving you as many of those side effects. And that's also a recommendation of the Choosing Wisely campaign, um, a national campaign around quality, and it's based on the the evidence. So I'm simply doing the thing that the evidence says is the right thing to do. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I'm so glad that you brought up palliative care, and, and one of the shows in the series has been on palliative care. and. I think that it's so important, and I know you know this, that we, that we do underscore, as you have, that palliative care is not hospice care.
2: Oh, completely. Palliative care is the thing that helps you live a good life. It's not about the end of life. If you saw me, I am too happy and healthy, um, you know, to, to be at end of life. I have too much fun, but I really couldn't do those things if I didn't have the help of palliative care to feel well. And for some people who are curative, you know, who are going to get better, they get palliative care just while they're getting the treatment to help them get through that treatment.
1: Right. And, and you know, some of the examples that, that we've outlined is... Um, Skin care, for example, you know, a palliative care physician can manage, you know, a skin rash that would come as a part of treatment or can a skin rash that comes as a part of radiation therapy. And um, I just always think it's so important to underscore that um, and really that the intent is for palliative care to help you live a, a full and meaningful and well life, regardless of what stage you are in in your in your cancer journey. So thank you. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. So in addition to your travel, which you said really wasn't a big change for you, but you've certainly done some amazing things, what other changes have you made uh, since you've had your diagnosis?
2: Um, Well, one thing that I try to do, I, I try to get enough sleep. I know that sounds silly, but people do tend to live longer when they have cancer if they get enough sleep. And when I travel, that means that I really try to make sure to get sleep even when I'm on the road. Um, I even go to the same hotel chain so that it's a familiar place so it's easier to go to sleep. But the other thing that I've also done um, changes. I've tried to get my daughter ready uh, for what's going to come. And so even in terms of her knowing kind of my decision so that she would be able to speak for me or my mother would be able to speak for me, but I also have my daughter um, doing my bills um, so that she understands all of the bills. She, my daughter's an adult, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, but you know, helping to prepare the people around me is a really important part of this journey. Um, and it will be helpful to them, but it also is helpful to me. It gives me peace and comfort as it gives them peace and comfort.
1: Mm-hmm. And I actually think that that's a really um, interesting practice for any of us um, to get into, really um, helping our families understand, you know, what and where and how and, um, you know, leaving them, you know, with uh, with security and comfort and instead of questions, you know, so I, I really applaud you for that. And I love, you know, I love some of your other self-care kind of suggestions you know, sleeping in the same hotel chain, I never would have thought about that. Um, I'm guessing drinking plenty of water and exercise, you know, also is, is, is a part of that.
2: Absolutely. And also planning out vacations. I have to say a mm-hmm. lot of people, once they get a diagnosis,
0: mm-hmm.
2: they, they think the worst. And the way that they think about it, they, they stop planning for all the fun things. But the fun things are something to keep you going. So it's yes. okay. Go ahead and plan. Throw caution to the wind. Do the planning. And, and I can assure you, you will get there. You will get there.
1: Mm-hmm. Or go on vacation without planning. <laughs> Just go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, you've said before that your first advanced care planning discussion saved your life. Can you say a little bit more about that?
2: Yes. So I, I do believe that having people around um, really um, that, that understand what's important to you, is a thing that not only not only does it give me comfort, but it also um, prepares them so that they're not in that Sophie's Choice kind of a situation where they wouldn't know what to do, and they're going to have to live with that, live with decisions and not knowing. So it's it's a kindness. But in this case, you know, I had lots of discussions about not throwing everything at the disease, not not doing more than is necessary, um, trying to support my feeling well and doing well. And I wanted to make sure that everybody around me knows exactly my philosophy, what's important to me, you know, helping me to live a good life. But at the same time, if at some point when, when the cancer can't be held back anymore and I no longer have quality of life, if I were to get pneumonia, I don't want to have an antibiotic. You know, if I no longer am having quality days, mm-hmm. I, I believe that, you know, it, at that time, I, I don't need to take um, an antibiotic to have one more bad day. Mm-hmm. So they, I really have to be clear on what it is I would want so that they don't have to anguish over decisions that they may have to make.
1: Yes, that's, I think that's really good advice. And then having that documented for the family, your family, too. Right. So you, you know, you've lived for eight years. I can't believe it's been that long since we've done the radio show, but it's eight years now. And, you know, what, how have the conversations that you've had with your family and your physicians evolved over time?
2: Hmm. Well, I was clear about what I wanted at the beginning. And I'm still clear, and my decisions haven't changed over time. But my need to make my family understand the nuances of these decisions—it's
0: mm-hmm. a continual
2: conversation. So we've had many, many discussions, and we discuss, um, you know, who who I would even want taking care of me, who I would want bathing me in the mm-hmm. family. You know, really detailed conversations. So we get deeper into the conversations. I think that's really helpful. So it's it's a continuous process of of exploring. It's it's funny. There's something on the internet called Death Over Dinner. There's a a young um, restaurateur in Boston, I think, who launched this, and he he gave a guide with a couple of questions and. And young people around the country hold these death-over-dinner so death conversations. And so I decided to host a death-over-dinner with my family. Mm. And we had a whole list of questions, and you would think that it would be a very sad and morbid and downer kind of conversation. And we were all laughing, and we were, we were all sharing the kinds of things that were important to us. And you never know what's going to happen to anybody who's at that table and when. And when. And it was a really wonderful and very freeing experience for all of us to share what our values were, because they're not all the same. And the goal isn't for us to push what we want on others. The goal is to know what the other person wants and to support them in that. So it was really great. Yeah, that's really, that's interesting. And I remember,
1: so I lost my dad to leukemia uh, two years ago. And I remember him saying to me, you know what I want? And I and I said, why don't you tell me? And he said, to be as close to the back of a black bear in the Smoky Mountains as possible. <laughs> and we were able to realize that for him, including the wild bear in the Smoky Mountains, you know, less than a quarter of a mile from him. You know, that was a really wow. special moment to be able to honor him in that way.
2: That's so good, Linda. Yeah.
1: So we are wrapping up um, this particular segment, Amy, and I just wanted to see if there is any other piece of advice before you go that you would want to leave someone who is newly diagnosed or living with a diagnosis of breast cancer or whose family member has a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. What would you want to leave with them?
2: You are the most important thing, and being clear about what's important to you, your values... And sharing that with others, that's the number one thing you can do. The number two is to make sure the palliative care is part of your care. And the last is big picture. You have one life, make the most of it.
1: Very well said, as usual. Thank you, Amy, for being with us. We've got to run to a commercial break. And when we come back, we're actually going to talk to Lori Bishop about some of the additional decisions that need to be made. So thank you so much, Amy. And we'll talk to you very soon, I hope. Thanks, Linda. All right. Take care.
3: At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. More can be done for the mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, and partners facing the unique challenges of this advanced disease. And every moment counts. While there has been progress made over the last few years in distinguishing MBC and bringing forward new treatment options, there is still more to be done to truly support the women and men living with this disease every day so they can continue to be there for family and friends. Lily Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease because together we know we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company.
4: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human healthcare, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
3: At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer or MBC deserve more. There has been progress made over the last few years in bringing forward new treatment options, but there is still more to be done. Lily Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease. Because together, we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the cancer support community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company.
1: This special episode and series on metastatic breast cancer is brought to you by Lily Oncology. I'm Linda House, and I'm sitting in for your regular host, Kim Tiepoldo, who is away today. And This episode is just one part of this special series and I hope that you will have an opportunity if you haven't already to listen to part of the series um, or go back and listen to the series. It's all archived here on um, Voice America and frankly speaking about cancer. On today's show, we're focusing on hard conversations, and decisions that have to be made at different points in time throughout the trajectory of um, not only just a cancer diagnosis, but of any real chronic illness. Um, And we are going to talk... About end-of-life issues in this particular segment, and I'm so pleased that we have returning to the show to speak with us is Lori Bishop, who is the Vice President of Palliative and Advanced Care at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Before we get started, let me just tell you a little bit about Lori. Lori is a healthcare executive focused on innovative and transformational interdisciplinary care delivery models for vulnerable and seriously ill patients. She has an extensive nursing background in hospice and palliative care. Prior to joining the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, Lori was the Chief Advanced Illness Management Executive for Sutter Health, serving an average of 2,500 seriously ill patients across Northern California. Under her leadership, the Sutter Health AIM program received the inaugural Vanguard Award from the California Hospital Quality Institute in 2016. In her previous executive role at UnityPoint Health, The system-wide integrative palliative care program received the prestigious Circle of Life Award in 2013. Lori is also a published author and national speaker, and I would encourage you that if you have not heard the show that we did with Lori on palliative care, that you please go back and take a listen to it. So thank you, Lori, for coming back and joining us today.
5: Thank you so much, Linda. It's a privilege to be with you.
1: So let's take a step back just quickly, and look at some of the the bigger picture items that challenge um, patients who are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or their families. And we know that thanks to better and more targeted treatment uh, options, a lot of people are living longer than ever with metastatic breast cancer. And we're talking a lot of years. So what advice do you have someone who really isn't sure how to prioritize next steps or they've just heard the word cancer and they really don't know um, where to begin? What what is your advice for those people?
5: Well, first of all, Linda, I think it's important to just kind of take some time and let that kind of sink in and really, um, you know, sometimes it takes us a little while to think about how do we feel about something or what does that mean to me? And sometimes it's just good to sit with it for a little while before you react. And then um, the next thing is to make sure, do you have the right medical team? Do you feel comfortable with that team? Do you feel like they understand you and you understand them? If you don't feel like it's the right fit, this is the time to think about finding the right fit. It's okay to do that. You are worth it. You, You are the one that matters most in this scenario. So, making sure that you have a team that listens to you and understands you is really important. Finding a support group um, so that you can meet with others who are experiencing metastatic breast cancer—that's also a really important step for um, most people. Um, and even if if you're not, um, you don't want to go direct, you know, to um, a support group, you can also find one online these days. So there's a lot of options. Um, if you're in a rural area, too, don't, don't worry about um, looking it up online. You can find a lot of support that way. Seeking out a social worker, you may have one on your medical team. If you don't, you can sure ask for one. Or um, a lot of palliative care programs will have a social worker available. Um, they are very skilled in the art of um, listening and um, helping you connect to resources, helping you kind of walk through what you're feeling and what you're thinking and helping you prioritize. Um, Then I would also say, are you interested, what treatment options are you interested in, and and are you interested in clinical trials? Um, So you might want to ask your medical team about that. Um, I'd say also don't forget to keep taking care of yourself. Yeah, you've been diagnosed with this um, heavy thing. Uh, what does it mean to you? But you still have to take good care of yourself. You don't want to let your health fall apart. Um, you want to keep active. You want to make sure you're getting plenty of rest. You want to eat well. Um, take good care of yourself. Um, then you want to also kind of, as you're kind of letting it digest, it's sinking in, you um, you're ready to kind of think about things. What about getting your affairs in order? You know, just making sure that you've had the conversations or what matters. You know, what do you think about from an advanced directive standpoint? Have you done advanced directives? It's, um, I encourage people at any stage of life to, to get that completed. Um, it's. We never know when something's going to happen, and it's just great to have those conversations with the people we love. Um, anytime, but it's particularly important when you're um, given a serious illness diagnosis. And then I'd say the most important thing is to just find things that still bring you joy. Um, You got to find some joy in every day. We all need, that's advice for all of us, I think, is just to find some moments every single day that bring you joy.
1: That's amazing, amazing information. And and I do really appreciate the step back, you know, and sort of take it one one little step at a time because it does seem like there's so much coming at people, you know, with with a new diagnosis or or a rediagnosis. And so, you know, given what you just said, you know, so if I'm the, I'm the patient and you know, I'm going to follow the the steps and the recommendations that you have Take us to the family, you know, and so when you think about communicating to your family, and Amy shared with us how she's working with her daughter who happens to be an adult, but some of our listeners may have young children. So what is your advice about having um, those conversations and, and helping them really understand and cope with what's ongoing?
5: Yeah, I think that we um, our first reaction is always to protect our family. And some people protect by not sharing what's going on, but I think that whether we share or not, our family understands there's something happening, and it's likely um, their imagination is, um, you know, going to take that and run with it, and it, it could you know even be that they're worried that there's something wrong with them and you're not telling them or you know it so it's really important to really be able to share what's going on if if you can't do that by yourself and you want help to do that again your your social worker can help a lot with that or there's also great uh, a great um, team member called a child life specialist and those folks are are trained to really help kids of all ages um, cope with whether they have a serious illness themselves or someone in their family does. So it's um, they're a great resource for you. Um, but you, you really are going to help your, your kids the most if you can really have an open, honest conversation with them and help them understand what's going on and then give them the opportunity to express how that's making them feel or any questions they might have.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, you you hinted to this earlier in uh, in your comments. But generally speaking, you know, when when should people start to really think about end of life issues, uh, including the type of care that they'll receive?
5: Well, I would recommend that any anyone <laughs> should do that. It's actually easier to have those conversations um, farther away from uh, our dying than than when we're imminently dying. Um, you know, my family, we have these conversations because of the work I do, so we're unusual in that regard. But I've also had um, loved ones have sudden change in condition, totally unexpected, and thankfully, because they'd had those discussions with their loved one, they, their choices could be honored and instead of that family feeling burdened that they were making decisions for the person that was um, imminently dying, they were—they knew they were simply honoring what that person had already, already expressed they wanted. So I think it's, it's easier to have those conversations when it isn't, um, you know, immediate. Um, however, uh, people do sometimes change rather quickly, it's never too late to have those conversations, but it's really important for people to know what you want. How do you want to spend that time? What does that look like to you? Um, How are we going to make that happen? What resources or services do we need? The majority of folks really do want to be at home, but that doesn't mean everybody does. And so I think even having those conversations with your family to say, I really want to be at home for end of life. Are you okay with me doing that? How's that going to feel for you um, after I'm gone? I mean, the more you can have those open, honest conversations, the better. And then also it really helps you understand what services you might need to make that happen. And it's also okay to change your mind. I think a lot of times people don't understand that it's not a one-and-done conversation. This is an ongoing conversation because our... Our wishes might change depending on what we're experiencing, or depending on where we're at, um, both in our life and in um, our disease. And so, it's it's perfectly fine to change your mind multiple times. It's just important to communicate that with your loved ones, and get it down in writing if you need to, or if you have um, designated someone to make decisions for you when you can't express your own wishes, making sure they understand you've changed your mind and what you want. Mm-hmm.
1: And so what what does that interface look like with the, the medical team as they plan for their future? You know, are there any specific questions that they want to bring into that conversation or anyone else that they should um, invite or consult for that conversation?
5: Yeah, I think that you first of all want to really make sure... Y- have an open conversation with your medical team um, about, you know, what uh, when you get this diagnosis and you've sat with it for a while and you're ready to have this conversation, you want to ask your medical team about your prognosis. You want to understand what are your treatment options, but you also want to um, talk with them about benefits versus burdens. And if you have strong opinions about how you want your to spend your time or what your quality of life means to you, you want to make sure you share that with the medical team so that your treatment plan is individualized to meet your needs and not just the standard treatment plan that we assume everybody wants. Um, it's just really important that you um, express your uh, what matters most to you and how you want to spend time or what... what are too burdensome for you so that if a treatment has more symptoms or burden than what is your, uh, you know, what you would want to deal with, that's important because maybe there's a different treatment option then that's a better fit for you than the one you might have been going down. So it, uh, it's important to have those kind of conversations. And then there is, um, depending on where you're at and, uh, and depending on prognosis, Many um, states have a physician orders for scope of treatment or life sustaining treatment. It's either called a post or a post in many states, but some states call it something different. But that's um, actually physician orders for your preferences, and um, that's an, you know, it's okay to ask your medical team, is it time for me to have, you know, to create one of those? And they can help you with that as well.
1: So when you were on the show the last time, we did a really deep dive into palliative care. And we spent some time with Amy on the in the last segment about palliative care. But, you know, we've got about four minutes left before we um, break this segment. And I'd really like for you to spend some time on hospice care and why it's so important, how it is different, what you really think our listeners should know about hospice care.
5: Well, I often call hospice care the Cadillac of services because it is the most beautiful model of care. It provides an interdisciplinary team because it sees the person and the family as the unit of care, and so it's very holistic, and the plan of care is driven by that, the individual and their family, not by the medical team. And so it really gets into what what support and services do you need to um, maintain your quality of life and complete whatever goals you may have. Um, It also covers medications. It covers medical equipment. um, There's um, proactive management of your symptoms. And then there's also connection to community resources if you need them and want them. So it really is comprehensive. Unfortunately, a lot of people wait too late to get connected to hospice services. Um, It's really meant for people for many months of care and not just for several days of care. And so um, it's much more beneficial if you can get connected to those services earlier.
1: And we, we know that that doesn't happen. And, and you know, part of it is likely that people aren't necessarily comfortable, you know, moving into those conversations. So if, if there's someone listening on this show today, how would you suggest that they move into having those conversations? And, you know, as you said, I think it's never too soon uh, to mm-hmm. make your wishes known. But how do you have those conversations when others think that it might be a little too early for that?
5: Mm-hmm. Well, we don't... Uh, we don't know um, for sure how long any of us has, right? And so I think it's really saying what do I need and want and which of these services might best meet my needs and, and take care of my wants. And I think that's maybe a better way to have that conversation and look at, you know, if, if, if I have a lot of needs or, um, or my family does, maybe hospice is the best thing. Um, there are actually people that graduate from hospice services because they get better. Um, but it, it doesn't... Hospice isn't causing your, um, your disease progression. Hospice isn't going to be the reason you die. Um, so it's kind of magical thinking that we think if we don't go to hospice services, then we're not going to die. Um, and, and instead I would say what services could best meet your needs because likely when you get to those services sooner, um, when it's hospice that would best meet it, you're going to actually live longer with a higher quality of life.
1: Great, thank you. And that is the perfect way to to end this segment. So Lori, thank you so much for coming back on the show and hopefully we'll have you back again. Your insights and advice are invaluable uh, to help our listeners. And I just want to make sure that for those who are listening, you can learn more about the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization by visiting their website at www.nhpco.org. Which are the initials for National Hospice and Palliative Care Organizations, nhpco.org? We have to take a short commercial break, very short, and we'll be right back with our next guest, my friend and attorney, Paul Pittman. Thank you again, Lori, so much.
5: Thank you, Linda.
3: At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer or MBC deserve more. More can be done for the mothers, daughters, sisters, wives and partners facing the unique challenges of this advanced disease. And every moment counts. While there has been progress made over the last few years in distinguishing MBC and bringing forward new treatment options, there is still more to be done to truly support the women and men living with this disease every day, so they can continue to be there for family and friends. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease. Because together, we know we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company.
4: Hi. I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi are committed to human healthcare, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
6: Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices? a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, and over Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Mealtrain, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. At Lilly
3: Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. There has been progress made over the last few years in bringing forward new treatment options, but there is still more to be done. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease. Because together, we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly & Company.
0: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is one in a six-part series on spotlighting metastatic breast cancer, which is brought to you by Eli Lilly and Company, Lilly Oncology. And... Whether or not you have a diagnosis or you know someone living with a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer, the information that we're sharing in this series is incredibly important. We've had information about palliative care, hospice, living well, diagnosis, different treatments. So um, I would encourage you, if you have a chance, to, to, to go back and, and take a listen to some of the other uh, episodes. And this one including, and in particular, what we're about to share with you, which is financial planning and estate planning is uh, incredib- incredibly in important. So, thank you again for joining us. And my voice is different than that of Kim Tebaldo's because I am your guest host today and I'm sitting in for Kim who happens to be away. And I'm so pleased to welcome our next guest who is a personal friend of mine and just an amazing human being attorney and cancer survivor, Paul Pittman, who for over 20 years has practiced law in his hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana, where he now specializes in estate planning, administration, taxation, real estate, and general business advisory capacities. Thank you, Paul, for for joining us again today. And I just want to let our listeners know that you have done an entire show with us on estate planning, and we would encourage them to go back and listen to that show as well.
7: Thank you, Linda. Uh, glad to be back.
1: So, before we really jump into some of the nitty gritty details, can you just share with our listeners what exactly is estate planning? And are we talking about something that only wealthy people do, or is it for everyone?
7: No, the uh, estate planning is uh, essentially a process of putting in place uh, some written instruments taking the people that are important in our life and um, putting them into the roles that are going to assist us both from a financial standpoint uh, and from uh, a healthcare care standpoint. Um, secondly, the state planning documents really help us determine what our assets are, um, who we want those assets to go to, and when the timing uh, of the distribution of those assets. Sometimes we distribute them outright. Sometimes we have minor children or maybe special needs circumstances, uh, and we may have to use a trust to uh, delay or put conditions upon um, when those assets are going to be distributed. Uh, But the value dollar uh, isn't important. Um, Whether you have millions of dollars uh, or um, a little bit less uh, in life, the estate documents are very important, um, and they can be done pretty inexpensively. Uh, So it's as much about putting those special people in the roles to help assist us if we have uh, some type of event that requires the estate planning as much as it is about distributing the assets. Mm
1: -hmm. And I don't think people really realize the amount of work that happens, you know, if there is an estate without the appropriate documents. So it really is a gift that you're giving to your loved ones by putting these things in order. Would you agree?
7: I agree. Um, as you said, I'm from Indiana, and there, and each state has their own set of estate documents uh, and, and statutes. But with uh, when you don't have the estate planning documents in place, and you're uh, forced to use the probate court system, uh, you're looking at a minimum four-month process in Indiana, and the average is about nine months. Um, so using the estate planning documents and, and also on how these assets are titled can help us avoid the probate system altogether.
1: Mm-hmm. And Paul, when should someone think about estate planning? Uh,
7: immediately. It, it's it's really imperative that uh, we start looking at these things. One, it reduces some stress in our life, um, but people just put it off uh, too often. Um, unless there's some type of triggering event, maybe it's a, be- a birth of a child or a death of a loved one. Sometimes it's a trip. Sometimes to life-threatening illness. These things tend to motivate us uh, to, to start the estate planning process, but we don't know how long we have. I mean, you're... you're um, so the, the sooner we can get in and get these things done, it removes stress from ourselves, from our families, uh, and it certainly, uh, and more times than not, helps us avoid having to deal with the probate court uh, altogether.
1: Mm-hmm. And let's just break down some of the documents that people might want to think about putting in order. And hopefully folks will have a pen and paper to, uh, to write these down, but we'll make sure that they have a, um, availability to to pick up the phone and call our helpline and, and get the, that information as well. So, you know, we've talked about why it's important to put wishes in writing. And, you know, one of those things is with an advanced directive and that's a formal legal document. Is that the formal name of it? And um, if so, you know what? What are they, and um, what are their? What is its purpose?
7: Yes, and you touched upon something in in, in your question about putting these things in writing. Uh, often we have uh, verbal conversations with friends and families, and this is what I want. But it is important as part of the estate planning process to put these things in writing. Uh, verbal wishes can be missed, uh, misunderstood, and sometimes they are just simply ignored because the caregiver thinks that he or she knows. Uh, what's best uh, for the patient. So uh, we want to put these things in writing and the, the different documents that we use to do that, um, advanced directives, both a health care power of attorney, uh, a durable power of attorney uh, that lays out the financial aspects of the estate planning, uh, and then you get into um, uh, documents that help with those, uh, HIPAA releases, uh, a living will that... Uh, again, talks about the care that we want. If we know that there's a condition that's going to cause someone to die, it allows us to do some of that um, end-of-life planning. Uh, There's also some advanced directives that aren't part of the estate planning when it comes to the attorney drafting them, but still very important. Uh, Indiana and and several states have uh, posted to physician's Order for scope of treatment uh, that helps with uh, the end of care uh, planning, uh, and then do not uh, DNRs do not resuscitate orders. Those are the primary advanced directive uh, documents um, in the estate planning process.
1: Okay, so I'm going to break this down uh, a little bit more and 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 go slow. So the term advanced directives is a broad term. It covers a number of different forms or sets of instructions, is what I'm hearing you say. And one of those, well, I'm just going to go through the list and we'll come back to them. So we have a living will. You have HIPAA privacy forms. You have the physician order for scope of treatment. And you have the DNR. So let's start with the living will. So what is a, how is a living will different from a regular will that people think about that distributes assets?
7: Yes, so uh, the two are often confused because the names uh, are very similar. The living will is an advanced directive that provides instructions to your doctors uh, specifically regarding artificially supp- suppri- supplied nutrition and hydration and persistent vegetative states. Um, these Documents only take effect uh, when there uh, is a certification by the physician that someone's going to die within a short period of time because they have an incurable disease or or illness. Um, So they are all tied to the end-of-life care. A will or last will and testament not only talks about the assets that an individual has, both the personal property and real property, and where we want those distributed to, it also lays out the important role of who would be an executor, the person that's going to assist uh, the attorney in probating an estate, Um, who a guardian might be if you have minor children, Uh, even a guardian for adults. We often think of guardians for minor children, but a guardian is for any type of incapacity. Um, so we use the last will and testament uh, to put our wishes as to who that individual might be. Uh, we can also put trustees and other people that are going to play roles in handling our assets into that last will and testament.
1: Okay. And then another thing that you had talked <clears throat> about were, um, that you talked about was HIPAA, privacy, privacy. Materials, right? And I think you know, part of that is what the medical power of attorney, the healthcare C- proxy. So, those all sort yes. of fall into those HIPAA documents.
7: They they do. So the the healthcare uh, power of attorney, uh, one, it takes effect if there's an incapacity. So uh, I have clients that often don't want to enter into these documents because they believe that they're giving up. Uh, they're right, particularly from deal- dealing with uh, an older family member. These documents only take effect if there's an incapacity. Now we can make them take effect immediately, but it's typically upon an incapacity. And then with that, the, the person and typically will list a, a backup um, representative as well to uh, assist with those medical uh, needs if that incapacity takes place. Now, the document, uh, the way I draft them and, and many attorneys draft them, they include a HIPAA release inside the healthcare care representative. We want to make sure that that representative can get all the medical information that they need to get second opinions to, to get them to a different hospital if there's a better fit for the care that's needed. Um, and then the living will that we talked about previously, I actually reincorporate that into the health care representative. Um, so that everyone knows what the wishes are regarding the living will. Uh, a living will, you can make decisions on your end-of-life care or you can leave them up to the healthcare care representative, but we want to make sure everybody knows what those wishes are. And if, if a, a patient has chosen not to have their wishes overridden, I want to make sure that the health care representative knows that that's the case.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And then I want you to very quickly cover... POST and DNR. We've got about three minutes till close, and I think it's going to be really important for you to tell people where they can go for help with uh, with these documents.
7: So yeah. tell us about POST uh, the, and DNR. Yeah. So the, the physician's order for scope of treatment and the DNR, most important thing, those actually come from the physician or uh, a nurse practitioner, and they really cover those end-of-life care uh, decisions, uh, whether it's medication, um, whatever those decisions are, but they have to be done through uh, the physician or the practicing uh, nurse. Okay. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Now,
1: the important, well, and another important, and probably most important for people who are really thinking about this, because it's overwhelming. Um, it's, you, you do it every day, and, and, and I'm sure that there are times when, when it's overwhelming for you as well. But, you know, if you're somebody like me, where do I go get help, even just to educate myself a little more and then find, you know, someone to, to help me?
7: Yeah, it is a little bit overwhelming so you, you need a, you need a team you need a village to help get through these things. Um, so whenever you're looking at it particularly if you've got a diagnosis uh, you want you want to talk to uh, an estate planning uh, attorney uh, you want to talk to um, and look at your insurance you want to look at your finances. Um, you want to go through and make sure that you have those things put in place uh, to remove the stress, uh, that all of those are, are caused. From an estate planning side, if you don't have a recommendation from a family or friend, um, there are bar associations in each state that can specifically recommend an estate planning attorney. And so you can get that help there. Uh, a lot of the estate planning attorneys can also help you look at the insurance and financial side of this so that you can cover all of that in your estate planning discussions.
1: Great. And a bit of a loaded question, Paul, is we know that you are a cancer survivor and you're six years, seven years out? Do you have these documents in order?
7: I do. I do. Uh, Fortunately, I had them in place before um, my diagnosis about six years ago, uh, and and they did. They were very helpful that uh, my wife knew they were in place. We had executed those uh, together. Um, she plays that role for uh, us and our family, uh, but we've also got backup uh, people um, for both of us uh, to assist um, in the estate planning process.
1: Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to say this, not being a cancer survivor, but I just could imagine that it takes one thing off of your plate so that you can then focus on healing.
7: As, absolutely. It, uh, stress is, is one of the primary enemies against us individually, and particularly if you have a cancer diagnosis. So these things remove uh, a level of stress. I can see when we've completed these estate planning processes um, what a relief it is, and it it gets back to doing this earlier rather than later. It's hard having these discussions when you've got a a life-threatening illness that you're looking at and going through and putting the estate documents together. So if you can get them done, get it off of your plate, it's better. Uh, But certainly... um, Doing them late is better than not doing them at all.
1: Yep. Great. Thank you. And we are going to wrap with that, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. The information has been incredible and and very helpful to to people who are living with metastatic breast cancer or any of us uh, in truth. And I have to stop for just a moment and thank Eli Lilly and Company, Lilly Oncology, for its support of our special series, Spotlight on Metastatic Breast Cancer. It's been my pleasure to join you today. And I was thankful that Kim was away and giving me the chance to host this particular show. As mentioned earlier, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our programs, please visit our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.